The scripture passage today comes from the lectionary text, and we've been in this cycle of Matthew for some time now, and it's uh, it's often fun and exciting and frustrating, these parables, and this one is particularly challenging. So uh, I'm going to invite Abby to read our scripture today, and uh, we'll um, jump in and uh, see what we, we're able to see and see what uh, God is trying to say. Thanks, Chris. I feel really privileged to get to read this one um, because it is challenging. And um, I'm glad that Chris warned us a little bit. I was going to say the same thing. Um, so before we read it, um, I would just invite everybody to take a second and really open up to the discomfort that this might bring, um, especially in a time where discomfort is maybe the majority of our experience when it used to be a much smaller fraction of our time, this can be really confronting. But I think that Christ and the Holy Spirit is here to help us here with aligned and open hearts and ears. And um, also just as a reminder before we read this is that anger is the emotion that informs us when our values have been violated, um, which is different than discomfort. Um, but I think those are two really key things that we need to be ready for before we hear this. So listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And then he rented it to tenant farmers and took a trip. When it was time for harvest, he sent his servants to the tenant farmers to collect his fruit. But the tenant farmers grabbed his servants and they beat some of them and some of them they killed and some of them they stoned to death. Again, he sent other servants more than the first group and they treated them in the same way. And finally, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come on, let's kill him and we'll have his inheritance. And they grabbed him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenant farmers? And they said, he will totally destroy those wicked farmers and rent the vineyard to other tenant farmers who will give him the fruit when it's ready. But Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that God's kingdom will be taken away from you and will be given to a people who produce its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be crushed and the stone will crush the person it falls on. Now, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parable, they knew Jesus was talking about them. They were trying to arrest him, but they feared the crowds who thought he was a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Abby. So, as you probably could hear in that sermon, 
a challenging text. And actually one of those texts that seems like a great idea when you put it on the schedule until it comes up that week and you realize what you've done to yourself. But that's also uh, one of the strengths of um, the canon of the Bible in general and the lectionary in particular is that you might actually encounter texts that you wouldn't choose for yourself and you're forced to uh, deal with that. Um, uh, it's, it's funny in my, in my research for the sermon over and over uh, commentators and other preachers um, listed. And I don't know if they got this thought from each other or if everyone's seminary training generated this thought independently, but the amount of times that they quoted uh, reformer Martin Luther about this passage, this is like the go-to, so I'm going to continue in that tradition about this passage. They said that Martin Luther uh, has once said that sometimes you have to squeeze a biblical passage until it leaks the gospel. <laughs> uh, it's not necessarily readily apparent. And so um, while I don't know that we necessarily have to work that hard, sometimes the, the best way to hear the gospel is to do less rather than more. Um, I, I do think that this is a challenging passage for us. And because it was challenging, um, I don't know that it, it lent itself for me in preparing and as I was learning and submitting to it for a, a really like tightly packaged, coherent uh, sermon message on this. So I'm going to do something a little different and I'm going to kind of walk or ask walk with you or ask you all to walk with me uh, through some of the major questions that we might have of this passage um, uh, that I was struggling and struggling and struggling. And then I, I just thought, well, what are the questions that we're asking here? Um, and these are, these are pretty good questions when you encounter any sort of parable. So maybe we'll gain some, some tools. And, and of course, these parables are these, these stories, these microcosms, these new worlds that Jesus creates in order to uh, shake us and break us out of um, like binary thinking or um, uh, the way things are or our old mentalities into something new. So there's, there's so many uh, ways that we can keep returning to these parables and hear more and more and more and see more and more and more. So first off, why a vineyard? It feels um, like a good time to be reading these um, agricultural parables. This fall season of harvest is a time when, when we can see all around us the um, coming to fruition of um, a year's growth and planting before the fallow barrenness of the winter time. But there's a, a very specific reason here why Jesus uses a vineyard. And unless you grew up in maybe like Northern California or even like the uh, Virginian hillsides, you might not have direct um, access or experience with vineyards. But when, when Jesus starts talking about a vineyard to his audience. If it, even if it doesn't ring to us, to them, it would ring of like a to be continued image of an ancient image of Israel, of, of God's chosen people. Consider 
Isaiah 5. We really like Isaiah around here. We get our name from Isaiah 61, uh, but there are also uh, parts of Isaiah that we don't tend to read nearly as much. Take, for instance, Isaiah 5, which is a whole um, prophet's song about the vineyard. In your Bible, it, you might have a little uh, heading note that, that calls it the vineyard song. It goes a little something like this. I won't attempt to sing it, but it says, let me sing a song uh, for my loved one, a love song for his vineyard. The loved one is, is, is maybe uh, Isaiah's God, or it's maybe the people uh, to, for whom Isaiah loves. He says, in this case, it's God. He says, my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it, cleared away its stones, planted it with excellent vines, built a tower inside of it and dug out a wine vat in it. Does this sound familiar to Jesus' sermon? And then he goes on to say, he expected it to, to grow good grapes, but it grew rotten ones. He expected it to grow good grapes, but it grew rotten ones. I think we might start to be catching on as to why the vineyard <laughs> Isaiah 5 then, then goes into this really detailed and strange and kind of scary list about what those what that rotten fruit is, what those rotten grapes are. Um, for instance, uh, this is all Isaiah 5. Uh, you're growing rotten grapes if you acquire house after house, if you annex field after field until there is no space. Greedy property grabbing, um, crushing the poor is upsetting to this vision of a thriving verdant vineyard. You're growing rotten grapes if you, um, quote, wake up early in the morning to run after beer or stay up late to be lit up by wine. People controlled by spirits and not the spirit. You're growing rotten grapes if you drag guilt along with cords of fraud and who rush God. You're growing bad grapes if you call evil good and good evil, darkness light and light darkness, bitterness sweet and sweetness bitter. You see this alternate reality in which you're like gaslighting people about the things of God. Or you're growing rotten grapes if you consider yourself wise and clever and are fooling yourself. You're considered growing bad grapes if you're a, quote, and this is a deep burn from Isaiah, a wine-swigging warrior, right? Um, th those are the things of bad grapes. Uh, also, you might consider why a vineyard shows up in Psalm 80. Uh, something similar to what we sang with Katie earlier. Restore us, God Almighty, make your face shine upon us that we might be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt and drove out the nations and you planted it. You cleared the ground for it, you took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reach as far as the sea and it shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all may pass by and pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it and insects from the fields feed upon it. Return to us, God Almighty, and look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root that your hand has planted, your son, um, that, uh, the son that you yourself 
have raised up. So we can see this image for Israel, this, um, this vine and vineyard that has gone wrong and is being picked off and, and not um, growing the way that it should. So that gives us a little bit of a sense of why a vineyard. Um, next question I had and maybe you had was, who is the landowner? Who is the landowner? Maybe that's the easier question of all this. It's, it's God, probably. <laughs> but maybe not a great look for God. Maybe a seemingly far away and distant God, an absentee landlord God. I think about all the metaphors for God, images for God, some, some which um, are really hard for us. You know, when we, when we call God father, it's great if you had a good dad. It's potentially damaging if you had an abusive one. Or when we call God master, um, that's, uh, that's fraught with all sorts of problematics to um, uh, enslavement and, and violence. Um, but also we get these wonderful images of God, uh, even as father, even as landowner, even as householder like uh, the image in um, Jesus's parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal son being greeted by this loving land-owning father who uh, becomes undignified because of his own joy for the return of his lost one. Um, we think of the image of God as a mother hen um, shielding and gathering God's chicks uh, God's little ones under the protection of God's wings. Um, but this image in our parable today of a landowner is tricky. Uh, it's, it's tricky, um, especially like I think of the context of an article this week that came out in our local newspaper in the Indie Week of about um, uh, the vast percentage of modern Durham that is being owned by people outside of Durham. Uh, like talked about in the last 20 years, uh, our, our, our property in Durham has shifted from 65% of our commercial land being held by owners inside of the state of North Carolina to now 75% of all these new apartment buildings are owned by out-of-state and out-of-towners. And this is a really startling shift because it means that money and influence and even like care and um, understanding of the community isn't located here and doesn't stay here. So in the parables world, it's not difficult to see that there are negative effects with this sort of distance between the landowner and the owned land. We see this even in our own bull city. Maybe another question that you're having as you're reading this is who are the servants? Who are the messengers? I think answering this relies a lot on who Jesus's audience is. It seems to be a really tense Jerusalem scene in the last week of Jesus's life. Everyone is, has gone up to Jerusalem um, for the Passover pilgrimage. So you have all these pilgrims and all these major religious leaders and they're all hearing these words, these stories, and this is the second parable of a set. Jesus is continuing to drill down and maybe even get more intense. They're all coming 
um, from someone who has been welcomed into this major city, the epicenter of their religious and political life, Jerusalem. They're coming from this person who had been welcomed into that city on the back of a donkey to hosannas and palm branches like a messiah. This is a, a really, this is a political season that maybe a month out from the election, we can begin to understand the sort of tension that is happening. Every word from Jesus is being parsed and scrutinized. Everyone has a stake in what's going on. The previous parable to this one dealt with questions of Jesus's authority, who uh, not just um, but the authority by which someone speaks, um, Jesus is, is shifting in them comes not from what they do, but by the one who sent them. And he's claiming divine authority as the one who God is, is imparting words through. And Jesus is being vested with quite a bit of influence. He's becoming the voice of the voiceless peasants who are gathering around him. And so now he's navigating a world of power brokers who are both religious and political. And let's be honest, the political and the religious are often very kind of hand in glove, maybe even fist in glove. And so as Jesus begins to speak of servants from the householder being killed, their ears might have perked up. There's a long lineage of prophets of God, these servants, these messengers being killed for messaging truth. I mean, confer just to the Isaiah 5 pa passage that we, we started with and these harsh words for these sinful things that are happening. These prophets, when they speak, they're speaking from within the people of God and they're often, they're also speaking on behalf of God. So they're doing this this God and humanity double duty. They're speaking from within God's people to God's people on behalf of God and often to the powerful. The prophet's words are most often spoken as truth to power. This is contrasted maybe with how often we're used to, especially in America, um, having powerful people trying to mobilize prophetic words against people not from within the people, but over and above and against people to maintain or to expand power. The powerful both in and outside of the church should always then have a complicated relationship with the prophets. We should have a complicated relationship with the prophets as people with some power and influence and privilege. If we too easily dismiss the prophet's words, we reject the one who sends them. If we too easily accept the prophet's words, it's likely that we didn't hear what they're really trying to say to us, who they're trying to lift up, the God whom they're speaking for, who is calling the nations to repentance. I think of the line with this of, uh, it was, just a little line in an arcade fire song that he says, never trust a millionaire quoting the sermon on the Mount. I used to think I was not like them, but I'm beginning to have my doubts. So there's this unsettling when you start to hear the words of things like the sermon on the Mount or words from the prophets and that should be unsettling. 
If you ever hear a prophet, make sure you listen long enough for them to make you mad or uncomfortable. If you ever hear a prophet, make sure you listen long enough for them to make you mad or uncomfortable. Don't block them, don't mute them, just let them speak. This is the sort of thing for which John the Baptist lost his head over, this sort of dangerous vocation of speaking amongst God's people for God to power. And maybe another question we have of this are, who are the tenants? Well, the tenants are God's people. In the original hearing, they're Israel. It's the peculiar people of God from among the nations called to witness to the nations. Israel was to be the tip of the spear for the salvation of the world. They, they were in Abraham's calling, blessed to be a blessing. This being the origin and purpose of God's people, we see the inherent criticism that's happening in this parable, that God's people have begun to bottleneck the blessings of God. They become stiff-necked and therefore unable to look around at the array and wideness of God's creation and the desire and love that God has for its flourishing. It's hard not to contextualize this criticism for our times and our calling as ones graciously grafted into Israel's vocation as God's people in Christ. We've become something we've never been meant to be, to narrow, too self-centered, too unimaginative for the God of the universe, the God of the nations, the God who wills that all be saved and the God who is preparing a feast of the lamb at a long table. This is the image we get from Revelation. A feast for all people in the presence of the lamb. So this parable of Jesus communicates this uh, Robert Farr Capon calls this strange kind of againstness. A strange kind of againstness of a God that is actually being in Christ utterly for us. Not for us to continue in our sin, but for us having just at the right time died for us as sinners. That Jesus died with and for us, even as we'd most likely be the ones who put Jesus to death over and over again with our violence and our blindness and our self-supremacies that can't see or can't handle that Jesus is Lord and rules with grace and peace. This is why this parable is so hard because it comes with a scandal and the scandal is in, in the words of Psalm 118 that Jesus is the stone the builders rejected and the chief cornerstone. That the, the, the very one, the key one who holds all things together is hidden in plain sight to us most of the time. We don't recognize the most important one in the world, Jesus. The Apostle Paul uses language like this in 1 Corinthians 1. That the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are being destroyed, but the power of God for us who are being saved. He says, Jews ask for signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is the scandal to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Christ is both God's power 
in God's wisdom. Foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. All this with the parable is to say that God gives us exactly what we need and want in precisely the way we didn't ask for it or expect it. God gives us what we need and want, but in ways that we often don't ask for or expect, in ways that we often can't recognize or make sense of. So we stumble and we reject rather than build and grow. The, the parable, this weird, strange, violent parable is a like wide-eyed, wild-eyed um, story about the stakes of all this. The rejection of God's work in the world often seems so mild to us. We reject, our neighbors reject the love of God, and it seems like a small thing that we can take or leave. But the parable exposes us. It exposes the, the very real violence associated with what happens when we purge our lives of that sort of gentle grace. God comes in gentleness, and we reject it. And we don't just reject it in a way that it never comes back around to us, but we will kill God's gentle grace. And this parable itself has been used historically in violent ways against the Jewish people. The, the reasoning being something like the Jews um, kill the one sent from God, even God's son. And so the Jews need to be held accountable. And it's really it's really gross. It's, it's, it, but the, the logic normally stops short of implicating ourselves in that, in that same logic, that a rejection of the Prince of Peace inevitably gives way to unpeace, that no one is immune to this sort of violence. The key is to read yourself squarely inside of this parable as one capable of rejecting the owner of the vineyard, capable of killing his messengers, even capable of the twisted logic that would kill his son. This is our story. This is the way we reject the cornerstone and stumble over the scandal of God's generative and present love to us. We just over and over think that it's not possible for us to be that way. It's, it's often so difficult for us to see. We, we do this so often um, when we, um, we're, we become really good, especially in America, um, with just a little bit of time in between of turning like killed revolutionaries into harmless nice guys in our memories. Uh, this is, it made me think of how Jesus lives in a pantheon with like the early Christian martyrs who we often romanticize, but also like latter religious figures like Gandhi or Oscar Romero or the Reverend uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. I think we're satisfied with some quotable quotes, some like maybe even like a Monday off of work, some commemorative swag, like a boulevard or a postage stamp in their honor, but no real recognition of why anyone would ever be so threatened by these people that they would want to erase them. We do that with Jesus too. We come up with theologies 
about what Jesus's death means for the forgiveness of our sins without much of a recognition that he was such a threat that he had to be eliminated by both the religious authorities and the political powers of his day. To whitewash legacies of people like this, like Jesus, with Jesus, is to fail to implicate ourselves in their deaths and is to actually oppose their work rather than join it. It is to reject and to stumble rather than to build and to grow. It's uh, Oscar Romero, I just mentioned, is, is one of these people and he talks about God's word um, and the way that we often treat it lightly. And Oscar Romero was a, a Catholic priest in San Salvador who worked on behalf of, of the poor and the workers in his country and was assassinated after giving a sermon um, about God's uh, identification and, and uh, nearness to those who were hurting around him. And he was assassinated as he was celebrating the Eucharist at a hospital chapel. And Oscar Romero talks about this word and he says, it's very easy to be servants of the word without disturbing the world. It's a very spiritualized word, a word without any commitment to history, a word that can be, uh, that can sound in any part of the world because it belongs to no part of the world. It's a word that creates no problems. It starts no conflicts. What starts conflicts and persecutions, what marks the genuine church is the word that burning like the word of the prophets proclaims and accuses. It proclaims to the people God's wonders to be believed and venerated and accuses of sin those who oppose God's reign so that they may tear that sin out of their hearts and out of their societies and out of their laws, out of the structures that oppress, that imprison, that violate the rights of God and of humanity. This is the hard service of the word. This is the hard service of this parable word to us. And it is also, if we're, if we're following Martin Luther, there's plenty of good news to be crushed and wrought out of this hard service of the word. It doesn't have to be this way. There's held out a very good news, a very real possibility that something fruitful can still come out of all this. Something beautiful and sweet can still grow. The answer to the listeners of this parable was to whom are they going to give the, the operations of the vineyard? And Jesus answers to a people who produce the kingdom's fruit. This is our calling to be people who produce the kingdom's fruit. This is our calling to, to join the spirit in this labor to bear fruit. And when, like in Galatians, uh, when in Galatians, when they talk about fruit and all these fruits of the spirit, they're not different varieties of fruit. You don't get to choose which one you're good at or which one you want. They're all, um, they're not different kinds of fruit. They're all different manifestations of the very same fruit of the kingdom, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
that passage in Galatians says, against these things, there is no law. Because in the kingdom of God, these things are the law. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And if we know anything about fruit, if you've spent any time in the Oak Church Garden, if you even thought long enough when you're in the grocery store buying fruit, fruit isn't automatic. Fruit isn't quickly wrought. Fruit is the product of so much forethought, of so much planting, of so much cultivation, of so many of the right conditions for growth, so much of the guarding for harvest until ripe. Fruit comes from discipline and discernment and steadfastness and anticipation. To be people who produce the kingdom's fruit is to be people who are dead set on living verdant, fruitful lives, lives um, which promote more life, life that begets life in healing and more life in others rather than violence and scarcity and defensiveness and death. Fruit is, fruit is both the cause and the effect, the byproduct of health. We eat a lot of fruit, we're going to be healthy people, but fruit also comes from a healthy plant. Fruit nourishes, fruit celebrates, fruit isn't fearful. Fruit is part of the feast. So friends, with Jesus, let us imagine a world beyond the world of the parable. Sometimes the parable uh, in the parables, Jesus tells a story of a world that doesn't exist. And sometimes in stories like this one today, Jesus tells us of a world that is even more real than our world with all of its violence. But let's imagine with Jesus of the photo negative of this world, the world that God is making possible, the world where the owner of this year vineyard, our God, isn't all that absent, but is faithfully and immensely present to us. The kingdom of God is at hand. We just need to reach out to God and he's right there. That we can imagine a world in which the violence of this world isn't perpetuated, but is absorbed by the death of the sun and not returned into circulation, but rather Jesus's death makes an end of retribution and makes inheritance and flourishing possible for many. When in a moment when we share in communion together, we'll say that uh, this is the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of the sins of many. There is a, a expansive and generative and exponential um, property to Jesus's death and Jesus's resurrection. And, and also, we can imagine a world in, in using these questions that we've, we've posed and begun to answer. Uh, we can imagine a world in which we're um, a faithful growing vineyard. Like uh, that Jesus' death brings about life and it brings forth this new reality. 
2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. We are new creatures and there is new creation. And this new reality is the, the beginning to realize an, another one of the prophet's words, the prophet Micah. And these words were made popular in the American imagination by George Washington, but they were given rhythm and rhyme more recently by Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton. And, and so we have these hopes that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree and no one among them shall be afraid. This is the world that we hope for and that we imagine and that we begin to embody as, as workers in the vineyard, um, as, as workers with Christ, as those who are growing in the fruits of the spirit. Will y'all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for this hard word, and we thank you for the hard service of the word. Give us courage to be examined by and implicated by this word, Lord, in the violent, resistant, stumbling parts of our heart. Um, this week, help us root those things out, um, that we might grow in in gentleness, in patience, in all of that fruit that you are desiring to bear in us uh, for our good and for the good of others. Lord, we thank you for your, your grace that is so subtle and persistent that we can often miss it, that we can reject your work um, even as it's foundational and fundamental for who we are and where this world is going. Give us eyes, give us ears, give us hearts open and ready to receive your word and your work in our lives. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.